You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Um, welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is David Schlossberg, um, and you probably all know me anyway, so I'll leave it at that. Um, we'll start, as we always do, um, by recognizing and acknowledging that we are on the stolen lands of the Gadigal people of the Yora Nation. The University of Sydney is, is built on Gadigal land. The University of Sydney has Gadigal history and materials physically holding the place together. I don't know if people know that there is 60,000 years of food history literally ground up into the mortar that holds together the quad. Um, and so there is this sort of materiality of food history that literally holds this place together that we don't know about, that we don't learn about, that we don't hear about. Uh, and so part of recognizing and acknowledging country is to recognize and acknowledge a long history of people living with place, living with environment um, for over 60,000 years here. This has been a place of that kind of learning, and it is uh, a privilege and an honor to continue those kinds of conversations that have been going on in this place for 60,000 years. So thank you all for coming. Um, the way this is going to work is um, that Luke Craven and I will tell you a little bit about the book, Sustainable Materialism, which is now out and available. Um, we'll hear um, some, uh, some short discussion and responses and interpretations from our two incredible guests who I'm just uh, so happy to have here, and I'll talk about them uh, in a bit. We're going to have a little bit of a back and forth with some questions um, and some prodding. Uh, of Luke and I, and then we're going to toss it open to all of you, and hopefully we'll do all of that in less than an hour so we have plenty of time to drink uh, and eat some more. Um, you all know probably uh, Luke Craven and myself, so um, let me first start by introducing our guests, Professors uh, Robin Eckersley and Kathy Gibson. And the first thing I want to say here um, is that their work uh, has been incredibly important to my own intellectual development. And so I'm sort of fanboying here at the same time as I'm looking forward with a little bit of nervous you know, energy about what they're going to say. Um, but I just want to thank them for um, decades of contributions and inspiration. So I'm just honored beyond words to have them um, here to comment on our work to question us and to launch sustainable materialism. So Robin Eckersley is professor of politics at the University of Melbourne and recently back from a Swedish research council funded visiting professorship at Lund University. I have been under the influence of Robin uh, since at least 1992 when she published a book, Environmentalism and Political Theory. I was doing my PhD work with John Dreisick at the time and here came this, this amazing, incredible statement of environmental political theory demonstrating not just an ecocentric approach to political theory, but demonstrating that there was this field called environmental political theory that I could then be a part of. And so it was just, it, it, was, it was heartening in substance and in, in, you know, just in terms of the, the discipline. Um, Robin has long been a defender of the role of the state against the anarchistic tendencies uh, in environmental theory. And so her book, The State and Global Ecological Crisis, was another major and award-winning contribution to the field. For the last few years, Robin's been working on climate change, climate change leadership, um, and decision-making, along with editing the Oxford Handbook of International Political Theory. 
Uh, and earlier this year, Robin received the Distinguished Scholar Award from the International Studies Association's uh, Environmental Studies section. So it's incredible to have Robin here. Second up is Kathy Gibson, uh, who's a professor in Western Sydney University's Institute for Culture and Society. She is simply the world's best and most well-respected feminist political economist. Her work sits... <laughs> you, you can use that if you like, yeah. But really, who else? Re yeah, there you go. Yeah. That, that is impact. Her work sits at the intersection of human geography, political economy, feminist theory, and action research, uh, with the work of Julie Graham on the end of capitalism as we know it, um, which has officially been named a classic. How do you officially get named a classic um, in human geography? Um, Kathy is um, just an absolute inspiration and role model for scholars that are interested in working with and for communities. The Community Economies Collective that she established is all about working with communities to think and to act and to live into being alternative and transformative ways of life, making other worlds possible, which is the title of her most recent edited collection. And last year, the American Association of Geographers presented Kathy with their Distinguished Scholarship Honors. So we're sitting with two recently awarded Distinguished Scholars. I'm just a little, a little intimidated. So, um, as I said, Robin and, and, and Kathy will offer some comments, but I'm going to start um, by actually reading a little bit from uh, parts of the introduction uh, to the book, Sustainable Materialism, which is up there. Um, I'll, so I'll, I'll do that a little bit, and then and Luke will follow up. Uh, so, yeah, this is actually, I don't usually read, but so this is reading from the book, but not from the book because I'm editing, so imagine I'm reading from the book. And this is how it starts. This is a book about possibilities. Possibilities in everyday practice. It's about the construction of different practices, institutions, systems for meeting some of our basic material needs, food, energy, and clothing, in more just and sustainable ways. And it's about the motivations, in particular the political motivations, for activists and practitioners working in these areas and building alternatives. Humanity faces a broad range of ills, from ecological devastation to racist authoritarian nationalism. We live in a world of constant ignorance, hate, manipulation, greed, and damage. We hear of all of these realities and their obvious injuries every day, as well as the reactions against them. The tweets and replies, the demonstrations and counter-demonstrations, bullshit claims, and corrective narratives. And yet much of this argumentation remains in the realm of discourse, and the academic realm tends to follow. So here in the book, we examine real and growing innovations in alternative forms of practice and material flows. The focus is on the stuff of everyday life, on the basic material needs of our lives, and on the development of alternative systems and counterflows of both power and goods through the lives of individuals, communities, and environments. And that's what we're calling sustainable materialism. If Foucault taught us anything, it is that power is embedded and embodied in the practices of everyday life. So as much as we can lay responsibility for climate change at the foot of the fossil fuel industry and the denial machine and the politicians that they fund, for most of us, climate change is linked to the simple act of turning on a light or getting into a car 
given the way that energy is still generated with carbon-emitted fossil fuels. Similarly, we can talk about and clearly lay out the incredible power of industrialized and globalized agriculture, but in our everyday lives, the destruction of rivers, deltas, and reefs caused by contemporary agricultural practice is linked to the simple act of eating food grown and raised in industrialized food systems, where runoff from fields does damage downstream. We can be aware of and understand and broadcast the very real human and environmental toll of fast fashion and waste, while the very clothes we put on our body every day leave behind a trail of harms, from pesticides sprayed on cotton fields to the deaths of sweatshop workers. A focus on the material flows of these necessities of everyday life starkly illuminates the impacts of corrupt politics, abuses of power, a range of injustices, and the ecological unsustainability of the satisfaction of material needs in highly industrialized societies. And it illustrates one way to step out from the power behind it and create new systems. So that's a bit of the introduction. We, um, we focus on three movements, three social movements, three material movements in the book, all active in Australia, the US, and the UK. Uh, we focus on food movements, but not just food movements focused on consumer goods, but on the de development of alternative and attentive food systems, on food policy councils, community-supported agriculture, a range of examples of alternative structures of community organization and material flows in the circulations of food. Similarly, we talk about community energy and just transition and nature-based transformation movements that expand the way that energy is produced and distributed. So it's not just about individuals putting solar panels up. It's about creating new systems and flows of energy and power through communities. And then finally, we address the movement resisting fast fashion and the incredible waste and destructiveness of the fashion industry. Uh, and their movements are attentive to both labor and environment along the entire supply chain from field to hangar. Um, and this is probably one of the fastest growing movements of the three that we're looking at. So back to the intro, in all of these movements, our argument is that there is a growing and palpable concern among activists of the recognition of and the immersion in these material relationships we have with the resources we use and the transformation of means of production that have been both alienating and unsustainable. In each of these material areas, while we recognize the importance of individualized and consumer action, our focus is on the development of community and collective institutions. Now, in response to the realization of the limits of individual action, a lot of individuals and movements have moved to address their concerns with more innovative and collective and reconstructive responses to unsustainable institutions and practices in which their lives are immersed. And the main focus of the book is specifically on the why of these movements and activists, in particular, the political and the social and the ecological motivations of the activists that create these new material systems and flows. It's about the politics of the shift in material practice. Um, so there are really three central research questions in the book. The, the main one, the one that takes up most of the space in responding is really about the motivations uh, of these actors. What is it that motivates folks to get involved in these movements? It's a frustration with politics as usual, and it's this shift from post-materialism to sustainable materialism. It's a, it's a frustration and a response to the power of institutions that run unsustainable flows through their communities. It's a desire 
to address injustices in supply chains, both ecological and human. And it's a desire to think through what it means to have material relationships and connection to the non-human realm in a non-destructive way. So this comes out of 100 interviews that Luke set up, 100 interviews with activists in these three sectors uh, in these three countries. So ultimately, the argument is that there's a way to theorize and understand and link a wide variety of these movements around this general idea of sustainable materialism. And the argument is that activists and groups are responding to and tying together concerns about and resistance to the disconnect and capture of the political process, the everyday reality of social and environmental injustice, the dominant and encompassing circulations of power, and the alienation and the resultant destruction of the non-human realm. And finally, responding, and the focus is responding, what's unique about these movements? Responding collectively, responding sustainably, responding prefiguratively and creatively. These movements represent an environmentalism of everyday life and practice, and a politics of an attentive and a sustainable materialism. And I'm going to turn over to, so that's quite a bit from the intro to the book. Luke's going to talk a bit more about um, the qualities of the activists that we talked about, and then we'll move along to Robin. Well, thanks, David, and thank you, everyone, so much for coming along. Uh, it's quite remarkable to be launching this book here today. It's been quite a long journey. Uh, David and I have been working on this project together since 2014, and David's been thinking about the, the ideas for much longer than that. Um, so perhaps good things take time. Who knows? We'll let you be the judge of that. Um, I live and work in the world of systems change, uh, and I'm really fascinated both uh, in the academic and in the practical realm about how people work individually and work together to change the systems that surround and encompass us. Uh, and really what has fascinated me and emboldened me through this entire project is thinking what's unique about the work that sustainable materialists do to drive systems change. One of the things that's unique about this book is that we're looking at sustainable food activists, sustainable energy activists, and sustainable fashion activists under the one umbrella. And that's not something that had been done before. And really one of the deeper research questions were what, what are the ties that bind these diverse groups together? Uh, how can we understand and embolden them as a collective field of practice? And so what I'm going to do in the next sort of five to ten minutes is talk through uh, four what we call prefigurative virtues, kind of virtues that underpin the practice of these uh, different activists. I'll talk really quickly about those four, and then I'm actually going to read from the hard copy book uh, rather than what David's done, which is probably a smarter move. I actually asked David to find me the conclusion as well, so I don't have to do it myself. Um, so what are, what are these four, four virtues? Um, so the first is a systems consciousness. Right, so what do I mean by systems consciousness? Systems thinking is thrown around as a, as a way to understand and, inter and interpret the world. But what's clear from our work with these activists is that in order to even think in systems, you need first the potential and the capacity to see the world in systems, to understand the way that different parts of the world come together, interact with and affect one another, and understand the actions of material systems and the impact of material systems on both the social world and the environmental world and the things that tie them together. 
One of the deeply nefarious things about neoliberalism is that it atomizes the way that we think. Uh, it, it breaks different parts of the world into different pieces. And a key part of the work of sustainable materialist action is fighting against that atomistic impulse to join the dots and build a bigger picture of what change can look like. The second virtue uh, is what we've called prefigurative humility. Uh, and I think this is, you know, this is a, a kind of modesty or humility that comes with the work of changing systems that are very hard to change. And I think often, and you know, there are, there are contemporary debates in the media all of the time, right? Should people be vegan or vegetarian when actually uh, eating in that way has a whole range of other harms that we don't account for? And yet what vegan, vegans or vegetarians are often accused of doing is setting the bar uh, too high for contemporary meat eaters. And the reality of a, you know, a pragmatic view of the way that the world works and what we think of as prefigure of humility is that activists not only acknowledge the limits of transformation and that transformation is always incremental and iterative, that we always make mistakes, that setting the bar high is probably uh, more of a danger than actually striving for change in the first place. And then the second kind of humility we found was kind of an epistemic humility, right? That we don't have all of the answers and we know we don't have all of the answers, but that shouldn't stop us striving for them. Related to that then is this, this third idea of um, what we've called kind of a boldness in the face of discomfort. And I think, you know, common to, to many of you and many of our activists uh, is, you know, the reality of being torn between a utopian vision of an adjacent future or a possible future that's better than the one that we have, but the practical realities of, of getting there, right? And I think we often tear these two possibilities apart so that they're ends of a spectrum where actually the work of prefiguration is about being comfortable in that gray. Uh, it's about being comfortable with living with uncertainty, with discomfort, and actually grabbing hold of that discomfort as a kind of, uh, as a power that gives us a creativity to think through new and innovative solutions. So, you know, rather than being scared of contradiction and tension, sustainable materialists run towards it as a, as a side of possibility and as, as a side of creativity. And then the final virtue that we, we found uh, common to all of these activists is a virtue of care. Uh, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of literature in um, feminist studies and in feminist political economy about the value of care. And it's almost ubiquitous in the work that sustainable materialists do. But there's a really special nuance to it. Um, and, you know, the work of sustainable materialism is really a, it starts from a place of love. Uh, and it's a, a love for others, a love for the non-human. Um, but also, you know, the, the work of systems change is also about a love for the self uh, and recognising the connection between those three things, again, as a site of, of transformative possibility. So one of the quotes we actually come to, and I'm actually not sure now if it's in, if it's in the conclusion, so I'll read it to you twice. Uh, but Bell Hooks famously said that social change is neither safe nor comfortable. Uh, and what these, these four virtues do is they help us make sense of that reality uh, help us see it and practice it in a way that brings into shape and brings into form adjacent and possible futures. So what, what I'd like to do now is um, one of the, I guess, the, the pleasures and the privileges that David and I had in, in doing this work um, was speaking to sustainable materialists across the world. And many of the people that we spoke to, um, you know, have stayed part of our lives in, in different ways. And there were three people, uh, three women who... Um, have joined us on this journey and in different journeys since uh, that we return to in the conclusion. And I'd like to, to read that uh, to you now. Uh, 
To finish, we thought it fitting to return to the experiences of three women who were involved in this project as participants, but have since become our good friends, three women who deeply embody sustainable materialist thought and practice in their own lives, and who lead organisations that are at the forefront of breaking down systems of oppression and marginalisation to bring about different, different futures. Each in their own way, as much as the organisations they lead, is proof that a different way is possible, an illustration of the reality and embeddedness of alternative and sustainable flows of material goods. First, Davida Davison, who many of you will have had the pleasure of, of meeting, the Executive Director of Food Lab Detroit, an organisation at the heart of one of the world's largest alternative food economies, who loves to tell us that her work is not about food, it is about movement building. Building a movement that with authority can give shape to a future that sees power held in and for communities. Next, Kath Delmaney of Sustain, uh, an alliance in the UK of 100 organisations at the national level and hundreds more at the local level, working towards a healthy, fair and sustainable system for food, farming and fishing. Who said, and I love this, um, that the work of change is like climbing a mountain, um, though the view from the top is often clear and beautiful. And finally, Leslie Lindo uh, from the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, which is often called Bali, an American organisation that represents thousands of communities and conveners, entrepreneurs, investors and funders who are all defying business as usual, who told us that none of this is going to be easy, but with just enough hurt and just enough hope, enough unity and enough struggle, something else is possible. It is possible. Hi. Um, rather than lay out what the book... Or firstly, thank you for bringing me here. This is a real pleasure. And thank you for your very kind words. Um, I think I've learned as much from you, David. So, cuts both ways. This book gives me hope, a great deal of hope, and it's refreshingly practical. It tells us lots of stories, but it also tells us about the meaning of these practices. And I think this is where Luke and David have really made a significant contribution to what is actually a growing scholarly movement as well of new materialism. And I'm not talking about the philosophical movement of new materialism, which is at the level of ontology. I'm talking about a turn to everyday environmentalism in environmental political theory. So I think this is an exemplary um, illustration of that turn, but it is part of a broader turn, and I've made an effort to try and draw all this work together. So I want to speak to this broader contribution to the field of environmental political theory. Um, we've already heard about what these movements are doing um, in terms of building more sustainable flows of uh, basic things that sustain us, uh, food, energy, uh, clothing, and so forth. But I want to also look at the timeliness of these movements. They're not exactly... We've had them for quite some time, but this new iteration, I think, comes... It's timely. And why is it timely? Well, I think it's partly a symptom of the growing professionalism of, envi of, of environmental NGOs, um, which have lost touch with local communities... I think it's also part of the failure of um, some forms of environmental advocacy. And I actually feel sorry for environmentalists because it's really hard to engage in advocacy that cuts through to distracted citizens. And they tend to move between two different circuits of legitimating what they're doing. One is um, drawing on the authority of science as if that's somehow a slam dunk. We know that some people are totally deaf to that 
and others are just bamboozled. It doesn't really work. It's a, it has authority, but not in a mobilising way. And then they switch to sort of more apocalyptic um, scenarios that freak people out. And they, you know, people say, I don't want to hear this. Too much cognitive dissonance. And so this has been awkward for the movement to try and find... Um, discourses that can really resonate with people in busy everyday lives. What's refreshing about these movements and the meaning you've drawn out of these movements is they provide a new circuit of legitimation that's demonstrative and prefigurative. It, it lives and works and practices the world that we wish to bring into being. And the more that's spread and more that people know about that, I think that's another more practical circuit of legitimation that I think speaks to a lot more people. It's also a sign of the frustration with the toxic nature of environmental politics in the Anglosphere. And why it's concentrated in the Anglosphere, it's totally absent in developing countries, much more subdued in Western Europe. It probably has something to do with the Murdoch press, but that's just a hunch. <laughs> Nonetheless, um, it's, it's about getting on with things and not, being, not despairing, because despairing is toxic too. It's toxic to a, to a sustainable future. It's also really attentive to the wide diversity of environmental concerns and local and practical knowledges of all kinds. It's um, also it's, it's getting on with things while we're witnessing this increasingly threadbare thing called liberal democracy. Um, and also the limitations of individual green consumerism, in the, where it's individualised acts of consumption. And whilst that's to be encouraged up to a point, there's nothing like collective action and organising and getting together and changing systems so that we get to choose what we want to choose rather than choosing the best of a bad bunch. So there is here a desire to do something positive to, and do this through political community while things are stalling or in the case of Australia and the US going deeply into reverse in environmental and climate policy. But this is a, an intervention that is part of a broader movement so it's, it's timely. So in the few minutes I've got left, I just want to talk about two things. And one is the word materialism and one is the word democracy. Of course, some people think of materialism as the opposite of what this book's about. But what I love about this book is the philosophy of materialism. And it takes a big swipe at Ronald Inglehart's post-materialist thesis. And I think this is a brilliant swipe. And it, I've been waiting for someone to come along and do this. I didn't... Why, why could I not have seen this all? Ronald Inglehart's post-materialism thesis is used for all these world value surveys. It's used for, for all sorts of things. But what it does, it um, is philosophically incoherent, as, as David and Luke say. <laughs> Completely philosophical, philosophically incoherent. A post-materialist is someone who is a kind of middle-class person that has a set of values that include environmental values, right? We are self-actualizers. We post-materialists. Uh, that means our basic needs have been met when we were younger, uh, during our formative stage. Materialists are poor people that are locked in poverty and have no choice but to be materialists and therefore can't care about these post-materialist needs, as if materialism has nothing to do with environmental harm and environmental justices. So this is... Um, environmentalism is not just a value choice. It's not just a lifestyle. It is fundamentally material. And I think this book shows the lie of that awkward binary... Material, objective, on the one side, trapped. Post-material, subjective, just a value choice. It does not stack up philosophically, ontologically or practically. And these guys demolish it. And I say three <laughs> cheers to you for doing that. 
And the new materialist movement in philosophy is a reaction to post-structuralism, which was kind of almost ideas all the way down. These guys say that ideas and material practices go together. You walk on two legs, one's ideas, the other's practices, as it were. And so these the folk that they've been interviewing understand it that way. And I think that's how we should all understand it. So finally, I want to turn to democracy. I think this whole movement is, in, in a sense, an implicit critique of actually existing democracy or it's, it's how, how hard it is to work through those institutions and bring about change and just say, oh, damn, let's just get on with it and do it ourselves. But it's much more than that. Um, and now I'm going to look at the, put this book in the larger movement of ideas here, which I think they kind of gel. You know, some say liberal democracy is where democracy goes to die. It's fake democracy. It's simulated democracy. So what we see here is this bringing out of different models of democracy, not representative democracy where you vote and get to choose or maybe get to exercise your choice as a consumer. Um, so it's not the modern institution of representative democracy. It's bringing back to sort of local participatory and direct democracy where folk get together and get empowered by working together to do stuff. So this is a very um, authentic, embodied, practical form of joining ecology and democracy. So what you have here are not just new material circuits and flows, not just new flows, flows of power, but as I said earlier, new circuits of legitimation. And of course, this is going to help environmental NGOs with their advocacy. So it's not necessarily in conflict with it, it's just another way of doing it that hopefully can conflict with it. Nonetheless, I think um, we, we can't see democracy wither. Uh, we need these social and political rights that are essential for these kinds of movements. So I think um, we need to find complementarities. And I think this is a celebration, so I'm not gonna, um, I have a few issues. I'll save them for my questions. Um, I focus on the state. This is a, a tragic space in which to work. But um, I cannot see how one can discipline global capitalist markets without the public power of states, the regulatory power of states. And so we, we don't want to build parallel universes. The local level, we have to find ways of that to be scaled up and connect up and actually change public regulation of all kinds to really get that critical mass of change that's absolutely necessary. But thank you very much. This is a book well worth celebrating. Great. Oh, well, thank you. Um, and thanks for the invitation to engage with the book. Um, and I, I'm conscious of the fact that I'm coming as a geographer and political economist into the space of political theorists. So um, my comments are kind of probably coming from that different, slightly different perspective. But there's many um, points of resonance, obviously, with what the book's doing and what um, I've been doing for many years with Julie and within the, within the Community Economies Research Network the whole kind of emphasis on moving away from um, kind of abstract theorising of what needs to be done to actually looking at what is being done. And this is something that we've taken to heart for many years. Um, and, and in this case, it's really kind of what is being said to be done <laughs> because it's really... And I want to get to the question of method in a minute. Um, the, other, uh, the other point of resonance, I suppose, is the fact that it is about the politics of everyday and everyday doings and this idea of living into being that you mentioned in your introduction, which I think is a wonderful kind of performativity to kind of politics that is also something that I've been um, working on and theorising. 
And the other big point of connection, I think, is this idea that um, community is being built through these initiatives, but it's not just human community. It's a relationship of community between the human and the non-human and a kind of um, really elaboration of a more than human community, which is this embracement, or embracing of a kind of a new materialism um, approach. So, um, you know, it's wonderful to see a book enga engaging with those questions from a slightly different angle. And I guess the, the comments I've got uh, lead up to the questions that I have too. And so they're comments about method, uh, about power and about politics. And just briefly, um, I'll go into those. So you've already mentioned that the, the motivation was of the book was to understand, or the actual reason, reason for the book was to understand the motivations of movement organisers, um, activists, environmental activists. And this is to kind of shift the discourse within political theory as to who is doing politics. And there's a lot of not justs in the book. It's not just individual consumers anymore. It's about collectives. It's not just about lobbying. It's about actually doing. And there's a lot of attempt to kind of dis describe and distinguish what, you're, what these people are doing from uh, kind of established wisdoms, I suppose. Um, it's interesting, though, to me that it's about a movement, and yet the method was inter interviewing individuals um, and analysing websites. So. Um, and content analysis of that. So there's this kind of individual collective tension, I think, in the book. Uh, it's a lot about what people say they're doing as opposed to observations of what they're actually doing. Um, and it's coming from a kind of grounded theory approach, it seems, using in vivo and so on to kind of hear what people are actually saying, giving, getting a better representation. So there's a kind of remnant realist epistemology in there that I was sort of kind of surprised at. And I think... Um, I also got the swipe of, you know, there's a bit of a swipe to J.K. Gibson Graham's approach, which I think is probably unjustified, but we can talk about that at dinner. Um, the idea that, these, that, 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 that we are listening to the theory that's produced within the movement rather than imposing any kind of suggestions to inform or direct that the theorist might want to engage in. So the researcher is a listener, is a reflector. There's this joint learning kind of process at the same time, you mentioned about consultation again with people about the interpretation that you develop, which you don't really discuss in the book, and I'd like to hear more about that kind of notion of the co-production of the analysis. Because I'm interested in what movement activists actually think of the term sustainable materialism. Um, to me, you're, you're, you're putting forward a language politics here. You're trying to instate a new concept, um, and I wonder who that term is really aimed at. Like, is it a term that people can embrace? Do they really understand what sustainable materialism is? Um, so I guess that's, that's one of the questions I have. How do you, how do you bring this back? And is it something... Because it seems to me, in many ways, the, the conversation is really with political theorists about, what, that, about sustainable materialism. It's a term they need. I'm not sure it's a term activists need, but I'm interested to hear that about that. The other, the other um, um, thing that kind of um, sort of... Uh, it was concerning to me was this way in which power is being... I mean, I think it's great that power is being focused on. Um, and the idea is that the, the movement theorists are fully engaged and understanding of what they're up against, this, the power of, I guess you could say, capital. And there's a hail... You bring into the argument this idea that that system, the system in which they're arrayed against, is this anti-fragile capitalism. That always worries me. You know, that is a binary that I've worked my life to kind of undermine, this idea that we have a dominant economic system 
it's not the end of capitalism that I'm arguing for. It's the end of a dominant discourse around capitalist um, homogeneity and dominance and anti-fragileism. I think, I think we could work very much against that. Uh, because then, of course, this idea of these alternative systems can only ever be positioned as, as fragile, and I think that's a problem. And I'm not sure whether that is what the movement activists would want to say. And I guess that's where I feel like the researcher actually has a role in a, in a conversation that might bring to bear different ideas rather than only reflecting what the ideas and theorizations of the movement are. So I think, to me, the big elephant in the room, of course, is economic theory and, and the, this idea of mega circulatory systems of, of supply chains and flows is very kind of sidestepping questions around ownership, around surplus, around um, finance and the kind of um, actual what are, the, what are the kind of nitty-gritty aspects of this other system that people are trying to establish? Um, and to what extent might we want to think about it as an alternative system, which again reinforces a binary, rather than an idea that there are kind of ecosystems of interaction here? Um, and I, I wondered whether that language of ecosystem might be something to introduce into that conversation, rather than this idea that there are counterflows, which then automatically set, sets up this kind of binarism. So I guess that leads to that politics and the political um, understanding of the movement, which you're saying is about a politics of interruption, counterflow, stepping outside the system. Um, and I wonder about that as a kind of a way forward because uh, it seems to me that the interpenetration of, of systems, the fragility of capitalism isn't actually opening. The, the openings that the state offer for these organisations to actually instate some of their ways of doing things and, and make them the norm, make them the new common sense rather than always be outside the system is something that we need to be working on and thinking about. So I'm interested in how the doing style of politics that you're focusing on here actually might start influencing the lobbying style of environmental politics that you kind of differentiate it from. But, you know, the great thing about a book is that it stimulates to think new thoughts and I'm really grateful to have had the time to engage with this book and... and, um, and hone my own thinking in relation to it. So thank you so much. So <laughs> maybe we should respond to those prompts and then Robin will ask um, some questions. Do you want to take a first shot or do you want me to do that? Well, shall I throw mine in? Because it kind of connects to that. It comes at a slightly different angle. Oh, it's it's easy to <laughs> yeah, I think... Um, question I had obviously was to do with the, the tensions and complementarities between this local form of democracy and actually existing liberal democracy but it's got many levels because you know to what extent are these small polycentric environmental governance forms that are durable or will they not last after the lives of, the, of their creators so they're examples of fugitive democracy you know as Sheldon Wolin called it um, and because if they're not durable, they won't be scalable. And related to that is the something I got through the interviews is this huge fear of co-optation. Neoliberalism is very good at co-opting nice little cooperative solutions to things and using them as marketing. And that's a very real fear, but the flip side of that is they will operate as parallel universes, quite small, that won't even dock with larger systems and change these big material flows. So this, I guess the problem of fragility, which was the term you used, or fugitive uh, fleeting, and uh, scalability, uh, 
we, I know that some of your interviewees reflected on this. If they want to change systems, they have to at least work with the local council to change some regs. And sometimes they hit barriers and have to work with provincial governments. And then they say, well, we can't do this if the feds don't do it. And so they have to start engaging and connecting up. So both through your activist reflections and also your own meta-reflections on the activist reflections, I'd like to hear how you think those, negotiate, those tensions are negotiated or should be. Well, thank you both for those wonderful reflections. Um, I'm going to try and tackle, I think, two questions and then might throw over to David. And I'm conscious that we want to have a conversation with all of you rather than have a conversation between the four of us. So I think, uh, Cathy, on, on your questions about method, which I think are really, um, really well taken, I'd like to make two points. So the first is I think one of the things that we were trying to do with the approach of this book, as you say, right, it's about listening and listening and reflecting practice on the ground. I think one of the things that David and I have always been really conscious of is theory that is, is not just something that happens on the grounds of a university. Theory happens in the real world. It happens in the world of practice. It happens amongst activist collectives and it happens inside homes, right? So it's really dangerous to try and dichotomize the world into theory and practice. And I think what we've tried to do is create a, almost a liminal space between the world of activism and the world of academic thought where we can be comfortable with both of these styles of work and in a way try and bring them, bring them together um, to create a kind of theory that's reflective of and responsive to activist practice, um, but accommodates uh, some of the work that is uniquely academic, which is that critical lens, right? The ability to make normative claims of the world and to think about the way that activist practice might not be fully encompassing of crit large critiques of, of neoliberalism. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's, there's a role for an academic as a person that's listening to and reflective of practice. Um, but then I think there's also a role for, for the academic world or of books um, of, of thinking through how that kind of practice sits against, sits against academic thought. And that's a really tough balance. Um, and I think, you know, we, we tried really hard in the book uh, and in the work to think about how we were actively balancing that. And so that was, uh, you know, sense checking the way that we were developing these different categories of thought and different motivations, um, going back to people and saying, does this actually make sense based on what you told us? I think the fascinating thing about the question, do activists see themselves as sustainable materialists? I think there's a point in the book where we say, you know, obviously it's not something that they're going to grab onto because neither of us work in marketing and it's obviously not <laughs> the kind of thing that's going to, um, build, build board by support, um, but uh, yeah, not S and M. Yeah, that's right. Um, but 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 at the, but at the same time, um, you know, when we said, does does this make sense to you? They, you know, there was a lot of oh yeah, I guess we wouldn't think about ourselves that way. But it does resonate with the way that we think about the work of the work that we do. On this question, which again, um, I think we address, we just didn't have space uh, in the book to, to tackle at all about. What's the relationship between sustainable materialist activism and the state? And actually really common in the stories of all of the people that we spoke to, many of the people that we spoke to had only been engaged in this kind of activism, let's say, for five to 15 years. It was fairly new for them. The vast majority of people were, quote unquote, young activists, not only in age, but in their tenure inside the, uh, the, the activist world, rather. 
and part of their, their impulse to do this kind of work was a retreat from more common modes of liberal democracy, um, whether that's engaging with um, representatives, whether that's with standard lobbying or trying to change policy from the inside. And so what you see is this almost complete rejection of those modes of politics and a retreat away to something else to getting their hands dirty. Um, but they do quickly realise, right, that that activism is impossible um, w without some kind of engagement with the state. Most often that, ha that happens again in the first instance, or that re-engagement happens at a local level because local government controls a lot of regulation around food and energy in particular. Then it happens at the state level and so on. But I think what's really interesting about some of these almost peak bodies for sustainable materialist action like, um, like Sustain in the UK in the food space is they actually do try and walk this divide, right? So they're doing practice-based work on the ground, but they recognise that that requires an enabling environment from the state to be effective. Um, and so I think, you know, tying both, both answers together, um, I think, and, you know, it goes to the, what I was saying about virtues. Um, sustainable materialists are both and people, not either or people. Um, and they're both and people in the respect that they value practice-based politics and more traditional modes of politics. And, you know, sustainable materialism itself is a both and concept um, because it's not about making a distinction between theory and practice or the world of academia and the world of activists. It's about trying to actively blur those lines and see what comes out of that, that act of blurring as a site of really, um, really interesting creativity and transformative potential. So, th yeah, thank you for those comments and Luke for the response. I, I, a couple of additional points. Um, and Luke and I are on the same page on, on what he was saying, but the, this question of the, the method and that this is about what people say, I mean, you, you are absolutely spot on about it being about what, what people say and not an evaluation of the broader impact of the movements because that, that's the key, that's the focus. The theory that activists are making Right. And this is 30 years of my work has been in trying to understand the political theory of activists and to, to bring the conceptions of the political that are working in political movements into the academy. Right. And this is, and political theorists, and when I first started doing this, you know, political theory and empirical work, like what the hell, what are you trying to do? What, what, why are you bringing empiricism to normative theorizing? But People have shit to say, and people think intensely and politically about the meaning of their work. And this is what we were trying to get at. We're trying to get at the political theory of movements, different kinds of movements, and trying to find the motivations and the articulations and the similarities across these kind of movements. And I think the, the contribution in a big way is not only elevating what it is that people are thinking about this and understanding those motivations, but it is connecting a lot of different movements around this sort of, th these ecological concerns, these materialist concerns, this awareness of the flow of power and goods through communities and this reconnection on the ground through bodies um, with sustainability. Uh, and so I think elevating that, and Luke is exactly right. I mean, these, these are, it wasn't just an interview. It wasn't just a set of questions. These were conversations that we had with people to draw out the meaning of what it is that they were doing. And, and my main hope for this book is that we have captured um, what it is um, that, that activists are theorizing. 
Um, and we did go back to activists and we had a workshop and we brought, brought people back and I was, I mean, I was surprised and just really pleased when people said, yeah, that's, that's us. You know, that's, that's what we're thinking. And that, I think, getting that kind, you know, from Davida or, um, or, or, or Kath, um, or, you know, or Leslie, getting them who have been just these amazing, inspiring characters for us to get them to say, yeah, that's how we're thinking. That's what we're thinking, right? That, to me, is the, the, the valuable contribution uh, about the method. And for me, that's a validation of this sort of political theory about um, activism and activist movements. Um, and the weird thing is, I mean, I, don't, I honestly don't remember where I came up and when I came up with this phrase, sustainable materialism, for some reason, it sort of, it hit for me. And I thought, there's no way we're gonna call that, the, the book that, right? It's sort of, uh, you know, it, it's sort of everyday politics or, you know, everyday environmental life. And what is John, John Meyer's book is about, yeah, everyday environmentalism. And that, that's what it was really uh, about. But the more we used the word, um, both with activists and with academics, the more people nodded. And yeah, I'm not a marketing person. I would not have chosen this kind of thing, but because it did resonate in both of those audiences, um, that's the reason why we kept uh, the term uh, in the title. And again, that just surprised me, but I think it does make that link uh, and get at the motivation and the meaning uh, 